Welcome back to the Bible Truth Podcast. Today we're going to look at a few questions that have been sent in over the last few weeks. And uh, Brother Bill Prost is with us to address some of those questions. If you have questions on what we've covered here on the podcast or questions in general that you would like us to take up, please email us at info at bibletruthpodcast.com. So, Bill, if you're ready, maybe I'll read the first question. The first question that we have says, in the podcast on sanctification, it was mentioned that the Lord was careful never to go into a Sadducee's house, though he went into a Pharisee's house. The Lord declared both the Pharisee and the Sadducee's teaching to be leaven. Matthew 16, verse 6, which says, Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Are we to distinguish between leavens and judge that some is okay to have fellowship with and some not? Could you give more clarification on that point? And I'll just add to this Luke 12, verse 1, where Jesus said to his disciples, First of all, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I'll turn it over to you, Bill, to uh, answer that. Well, thank you very much, Josh. I feel that that is a very good question, and I feel that Scripture does answer it for us, although perhaps not directly. Yes, it is very true that the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Sadducees were both bad, and as such, the Lord calls them leaven. However, I feel that there is a fairly major difference between the two. The leaven of the Sadducees was essentially a doctrinal error, a serious one, in a denial of the resurrection. And carried to its logical conclusion, that leaves us essentially, uh, although the Lord, of course, had not died and risen again at that time, but it essentially would leave us with no resurrection for, for believers, no resurrection of Christ himself. So it would take, under, take from under us the whole ground of true Christianity. The leaven of the Pharisees was a leaven of practice, not a leaven of doctrine. And without referring to it, we find the Lord uh, calling out the Pharisees in Matthew 23, for example, and saying over and over again, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, and so on. Their, their leaven was bad, but the Lord did give them credit in the beginning of that chapter for teaching the right thing. He said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, all therefore that they bid you, that observe and do, but do not after their ways. I believe that is the essential difference. And while certainly leaven in practice is bad enough, it can be corrected if at least a sound basis is maintained. But if the foundations be destroyed, 
as the word of God says, what can the righteous do? That is, when the foundations are gone, there is nothing on which to build good practice. We see that exhibited in, for example, the epistle to the Corinthians and the epistle to the Galatians. In both epistles, we find this expression, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. But in Corinthians, Paul commends them for what they had done and what was going on among them that was right, because they had not essentially introduced doctrinal error. It was mostly an error of practice. But when he writes to the Galatians, we notice there is not one word of commendation. He starts right in on them and says, Oh, foolish Galatians. And uh, away he goes, because essentially they were putting believers back under law to live their Christian life. And that was such a serious error that Paul uses the rest of the epistle to point out that this was really taking them right off Christian ground. So I would suggest that that is the essential difference between the scribes and Pharisees' leaven and the leaven of the Sadducees. Thank you, Bill. Let's move on maybe to our next question. Now, the next question says, in the podcast on justification, it was presented that justification in James is not judicial or eternal justification. Rather, it is the justification before the eyes of man. Is it possible that the justification in James is still before God, but that James gives the test of the legitimacy of that faith? which is proven by works? Well, that again is an excellent question, Josh. And I admit that I may not have explained the whole thing as well as I should have in the podcast that dealt with justification. As the one who asks the question points out from J.N. Darby's ministry, and I'll read it, he says, if a man say he hath faith, this is the key to this part of the epistle. And that is very true. In that sense, a man who does not have any works to back up his faith is viewed as not having faith at all, but merely his being a professor. And so the writer is quite correct in pointing out from both William Kelly and uh, J.N. Darby's ministry that in James, it is assumed that the individual who cannot demonstrate his faith by his works does not, in fact, have faith. The only point I wanted to make there, and I will just turn to the book of James in order to make the point clear, if we turn over to the book of James, in the second chapter of James, it says there, verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works? Can faith save him? And then verse 17, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. And then, of course, the next verse says, Thou hast faith, 
and I have works. A man may say that. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And then it says in verse 20, O vain man, faith without works is dead. The point I wanted to make was that God can see the faith. God does not need the works to prove where my faith is. He can see it in the heart. But man cannot see into the heart. Therefore, the works are the proof of the reality of the faith. I would only point out something that was in my mind at the time, and it's not brought out in James, but perhaps, Josh, you have known believers, and I certainly have too, whose outward lives were so worldly and in some cases so sinful. I can think of a man right now whom I have known most of my life that I believe he is a child of God, and more than once he has confessed Christ. But his life has been so worldly and so destitute of any evident fruit for Christ that most people that know him question whether he is a true believer. And so the point that I make is, is there true faith there? We have to fall back on 2 Timothy 2 that says, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And he does. Even if the works do not manifest the faith, the Lord knoweth them that are his. On the other hand, it's a sad thing when a believer's life is so destitute of any works toward God that those who look on mock Christianity and say, you call you you call that man a Christian? Look at the way he lives, and so on. But the writer of the question is quite correct in that in James, it is particularly talking about a man who says he has faith. And another one says, then you show it to me. I need the proof. But I, the point I was making is that God does not need the proof but in its final essence, of course, new life in Christ is always real. And it cannot be a halfway point. As the writer says, and I'm reading his question again, is it possible that the justification in James is still before God, but that James give the test of the legitimacy of that faith, which is how proven by works? Absolutely. That statement is absolutely and 100% correct. And so God is assuming that when there is faith, there will definitely be the proof of it in one's life. That's very good, Bill. Thank you. What James brings out doesn't change the fact that what God is looking for is faith in his son. That is clearly established, but that that faith, if it is real, will always be accompanied by works, such that faith, apart from works, is dead faith. Very true. James is the show-me epistle. And I would only mention that we have to recognize the context of every scripture. James was a book written primarily to the nation of Israel. And as our brother Clifford Brown used to tell us, written to the 
whole 12 tribes, some saved, some not saved. And the Jewish nation, I say the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, were accustomed to taking refuge in the fact that they were born into a favored nation. And as such, they took pride in their position, perhaps with no inward reality. And so the writer of the book of James, very likely the brother of the Lord Jesus, is taking them up on that and making sure that they are not resting on an outward position instead of inward reality. And he points out that if there were inward reality, it would manifest itself in outward works. <clears throat> Very good. Okay, Bill, we have one more question. The final question says, in the podcast on deliverance, it was mentioned that we have a sinful nature. I also know that Christ is sinless. My question is, can Christ sympathize with us in our struggle with sin? That is also a very good question, Josh. And the way I would answer it is this. The sympathies of Christ, according to Scripture, are for our infirmities, not for our sin. I'll just read Hebrews 4 and verse 15, which is well known. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. I remember well a young brother in Christ. I would like to think that he was real, although some, when they viewed his lifestyle, raised a question about that. But he was doing that, which was clearly sinful. He divorced his wife for no good reason and married another woman and wanted other believers to respect him for that and to accept him as if this were quite a reasonable thing to do. And when I had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him about it, I was shocked at something he said. He said, I believe that the Lord understands these things. My answer to him was, brother, if you are a brother, you have to realize that the Lord does not understand sin. God hates sin and cannot have it in his presence. And so in that sense, I would suggest that nowhere in Scripture does God sympathize with sin. He condemns it. And we read in Romans chapter 8, for example, that at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ condemned sin in the flesh, very definitely. So what about Christ sympathizing then? He sympathizes with our infirmities, and an infirmity may lead to sin. The infirmity may lead to sin if I don't judge the tendency towards sin. And so, for example, and I'll use myself, most of my life I have suffered occasionally from severe migraine headaches. And if I let those headaches uh, do what they would tend to do, 
they make me a little hard to get along with and rather, as we say in English, short-tempered. Does Christ sympathize with my being short-tempered and hard to get along with? No. Why? Because he says, in essence, my grace is sufficient for thee. Whatever you need, I will give you the grace to be an overcomer. And of course, the truth of that, as we dealt with before, is in the latter part of Romans 5 and then Romans 6, where we read that we are dead to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ and so on. And so through the death and resurrection of Christ, you and I can reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. So God condemns sin in the flesh. There is no remedy for sin or that old sinful self. It deserves nothing but death, and we cannot allow ourselves to sympathize with it, nor will Christ ever sympathize with it. But he does sympathize with the infirmities we have, which, of course, if we allow it, can lead to sin. But then again, to repeat myself, the Lord says, I will give you all the grace you need to overcome that tendency to sin. I can still remember a dear brother in Christ whom I knew quite well. I believe he's still alive. He's no longer gathered to the Lord's name, but I knew him well. And at one point, he was, in a gentle way, faced up with something in his life that was contrary to the word of God and not what a Christian should be doing. And I'll never forget his answer. He said, but I can't help it. That's the way I made. Well, I have heard more than one individual, including unbelievers, excuse their bad behavior on that basis by saying, that's the way I made. And that is certainly true. We are born in sin and shapen in iniquity. But then once we accept Christ as our Savior, we have new life in Christ. We're indwelt with the Spirit of God. And it says the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. But it, does it help our sin? No. God says you are to treat that old sinful self as if it's dead. And that's where it comes. I can still remember a man down in New Jersey in the United States who was talking to a group of men, and I was supposed to speak to them too, but he gave a little preliminary talk. And many of those men were guilty of drug addictions and alcoholic addictions and so on. But he was a believer and he understood the truth of all that. And his English wasn't perfect, but he got the point across. He said, men, a dead man don't go out drinking. A dead man don't do drugs. Remember, every time you think about that, you're a dead man to all that kind of thing. I thought that was very good. Well, maybe I could just bring out one thing and just see if you agree with it. Um, just to, to compliment what you've said. In 1 Peter 4, we have something that 
touches maybe a little bit on this. First uh, Peter four, verse one and two. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. What I would bring out from this is that Christ suffered in obedience. I believe that's what Peter is bringing out here. And we too are going to have to suffer in the same way. Christ was tempted, but his temptations were all from without. There was nothing within him that would lead him to temptation. It was the devil coming to him and tempting him in, in the temptation in the wilderness. He said that you know, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. There was nothing in him. There was no sin nature in him that would lead him to sin. So in that way, Christ is totally different from us because we have that fallen nature. We are tempted both from without, as Christ was, but also from within, which is a totally different thing. But <clears throat> Christ suffered to do the will of God. There was opposition. There was persecution. There was there were those things which, in order to do God's will, he had to suffer. Um, in the volume of the book, it was written of him, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And in order to do that, he had to have a mind that I am willing to suffer in order to obey. And Peter says here, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Now, the reason why is perhaps different. We have a sin nature, and and so there's that in that way. Christ does not sympathize with that, but the willingness to suffer in order to do the will of God, even the willingness to die rather than disobey, is the same mind that we are to have. So I think, would you say in that sense that the willingness to suffer rather than disobey, in that sense, Christ can sympathize with us, um, although it's not sympathizing with sin or, or the sin nature. Would you, uh, would you agree with that, Bill? Yes, I would, and I think that's a good point, and thank you for bringing it up, Josh. As you say, the Lord is the prime example of that, because when he refused to turn stones into bread during his temptation, he suffered in the fact that he was still hungry. And you can imagine how hungry after not tasting food for 40 days. Can you imagine how that would feel? Because I don't believe he, if I could say it very reverently, had some supernatural power that he didn't feel as hungry as you or I would under those circumstances. And martyrs, who, like Christ, went into death rather than deny their Lord or submit to they suffered rather than disobey. And in that sense, he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. There is pleasure in sin. And when I resist that tendency to carry out that sin, there is suffering involved very definitely. 
And in that sense, absolutely, Christ sympathizes with us. No, that that is very good, and that that's a that's an angle of it. I believe that. Yes, that's a, that's good that you brought that out. Well, thank you, Bill. Appreciate your time very much. Join us next time on the Bible Truth Podcast, where we plan to talk about the Lord's coming. We'll take that subject up in two parts, beginning with the Lord's coming for his saints, known as the rapture. If you have any questions, please email us at info at